History Reread, October 2021, The Communist Manifesto. You are very welcome to this podcast, History Reread. On the first Monday of every month, I present a commentary on a famous text from history, something familiar that many of you will have already read while others, myself included, might feel it to be something we should have read or must have read but can't remember doing so. Over the other Mondays of the month, I am relating the text audiobook style either in full or abridged form. This month it is The Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels and the reread is prompted by the following headline and story. German communists call for street mobilizations against militarism on World Peace Day. By Steve Sweeney, taken from the Morning Star, London, online, on the 30th of July, 2021. The journalist responsible for this story is the international editor of the newspaper in question, the organ of the Communist Party of Great Britain. However, there is no indication, either in the online version of the paper or on the writer's personal website, of him being a member of the party. Only his trade union affiliations are mentioned on his website. On the pretext of World Peace Day, Sweeney's article appears to be addressing two separate issues on which familiar tropes as to the workers' struggle are recycled for a modern audience, with a view to bringing about a change in the capitalist status quo. Not only are there the predictable assumptions behind these commonplaces in the piece, take for example, quote, The DKP remains a 100% anti-war party. We say peace with Russia and China. Get out of NATO. But also the usual intimations of betrayal on the part of other leftist parties as to the decisions of great moment over somewhat minor matters that need to be got right in order to ensure an eventual workers' state. The following is typical. The DKP, the German Communist Party, initially excluded from the poll in a move backed by De Linke, is now fielding a number of candidates after the ban was overturned last month. The principled position of the anti-war stance of the first quote is misapplied to the circumstances described in the second which amounted to a scaled-up operation to protect Kabul airport in Afghanistan during the Western evacuation from the city. It is inexplicably reported as an act of war. The party mentioned, Der Linke, or the left, has within its ranks a faction who were communists in the former East Germany. The inference of betrayal comes from the fact that they voted for the deployment of troops in Afghanistan. The implication is, of course, that these communists, if they regard themselves as such in the first place, have sold out. 
to the imperialists. What this says about modern German politics is something to come back to. The Morning Star, which printed and posted the article online, begs a minor digression. I have no figures as to the circulation of this newspaper as of today, but it was no more than 15,000 in 2005, according to a BBC News report. Whatever the exact circulation now, and the number of paid subscribers to its website, funds cannot possibly cover the costs of producing copy, printing, and distribution. From 1966, when it became the Morning Star, having been the daily worker, it was funded by the Soviet Union directly, support which continued after 1974 by more securitous means. In its former guise as the daily worker, it managed a circulation of about 100,000 immediately after the Second World War. This was the high watermark of its influence, perhaps confirmed by its banning in 1941, when the survival of Britain was at its most critical. It returned the following year with the United States and, more critically, the Soviet Union as Britain's allies. Communism, an overview it is both the late fruit of German idealism that started with liberal thinkers and a kind of artisanal, good-natured collectivism, the highest of Teutonic aspirations and the humblest of early industrial enterprise, Berlin and, at the same time, Rochdale. The German capital was the home to ideas such as dialectical materialism and the Lancashire town, the place of the first co-op. The two do not always sit well together, but are worthy of equal attention. Dialectical materialism is a theory of social progression based on the idea that there are contradictions in the real world posited as theses, to which, in each case, rational thought can be applied, antitheses, with a view to finding solutions, syntheses. The cooperative movements may concern any or all capitalist enterprise. Not only would factories be owned by the workers, but shops would be owned by the local customers, and building societies by potential homeowners. We will look at Germany as a 21st century political entity based on what we understand so far about communism in more detail presently. German politics. The necessary context. The left would appear to be recovering in Germany today if the election results of the 26th of September this year are anything to go by, but not the hard left. It is the hard right and their hold on society which remains a matter of concern following the Holocaust of the 20th century. The present iteration of German fascism comes in the form of alternative for Deutschland, 
a party needs at least 5% of the second vote to be allowed seats in the Bundestag. There are two boxes to tick on the ballot paper. In contrast to the second vote for a political party, the first is a vote for the candidate of choice who will then take their place in the parliament or Bundestag. Alternative for Deutschland looks as if it has lost votes but will retain seats in the Bundestag. This parliamentary body post-1950 represents the epitome of social democracy. Germany's social democratic history is often overlooked outside the country. The SPD, the Social Democratic Party, the oldest political party, has been a part of it since the time of Bismarck. In that today the party has the most votes, it has won the 2021 federal German election. It has long sundered itself from the far left, hence making it possible since the war for this centre-left party to go into coalition with the main centre-right party, the Christian Democratic Union of Germany and its twin, the Christian Social Union in Bavaria. This is the present status quo. There will be another coalition in Germany, but because of the SPD's improved showing and the Christian Democrats' disappointing one, it may well be left-leaning involving the Greens. Much political horse-trading will have to be done before a new government emerges under a different Chancellor to the long-serving Angela Merkel. The outgoing administration as a coalition straddling the very centre of German politics is the kind of arrangement generally that is, if not the norm, then hardly the exception either. Its work is not yet done, as the negotiations just mentioned could last months. Merkel may well be staying on until Christmas, conceivably until the new year. German politics in relation to the article. The German Communist Party, the DKP, mentioned in the news story, had under its headline a photograph of part of an election banner that appears to say Die Krise heißt Kapitalismus, a crisis called capitalism. That there is a state of economic crisis is something most adults living in developed countries since 2007-2008 would agree on, at least when looking at the standard of living for the majority. Whether such crises are, per se, endemic to an immoral system or a manageable side effect of this form of economic relations within society is open to question. Differences of opinion will come about over detail that can appear as disputes over substance, as we saw with the position taken by the Morning Star journalist, who we take to be communist in outlook, over the German left's support for the country's involvement in the last throes of Western action in Afghanistan. 
as always or nearly always verbal snipes at fellow leftists imply more rancor closer to home than when coming from other parties ideologically a universe away i mean a certain preciousness over the true legacy of marx as well as marx and engels and by extension marx and lenin as well as the conundrum that there is marxist leninism but no marxist ingalian leninism the german communist party the token focus of the sweeney article got around 7,500 votes nationally in the federal elections in Germany four years ago, under 0.1 of one percentage point. The strictly doctrinal German Marxist-Leninist party did better with fully 0.1 of the vote. Neither party is saying very much. Neither party will win seats in the Bundestag. The Communist Party has nothing on its website about their share of the vote three days after polling. The leader of the Marxist-Leninists, Gabi Fischner, has posted a YouTube video on the party's website with a plain front-of-camera address stating that the election was rigged by an unnecessary focus on the part of the bourgeois parties on mundane things like climate change. According to the official website of the Federal Returning Officer, neither of these radical minor parties have shown any difference in votes won or lost in comparison with their respective showings in 2017. A few more words about the left in Germany, despite the risk of Polonius-like tedium, are necessary. The parliamentary left, Der Linke, is a party which includes another rump of Marxist-Leninism in party membership. It came from the SED, the Socialist Party of the former East Germany. It became the PDS, or Party of Democratic Socialism, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and later merged with a party called Labour and Social Justice, the Electoral Alternative, a movement formed in 2005 following disenchantment with the ruling coalition of the time. De Linke received 11.9% of the second vote in the elections of 2009, finishing in third place behind the Christian Democrats and the SPD, the Social Democrats. But their share dropped to 8.6% in 2013 and remained at the same percentage in the election of 2017 in which they got 69 seats in the Bundestag, up four from 2013. At the time of writing, this party's percentage of the second vote is 4.9%, just short of the required 5%. They will lose all their seats in the Bundestag if the electoral rules are strictly applied.
we will look at the relevance of the Morning Star article to the current state of political discourse in more detail presently. The article's relevance to the current state of political discourse. Whenever there is a revival in the Marxist ideal of change, it usually comes about at times of economic crisis. Marx correctly identified cycles of boom and bust as a crisis of capitalism. It concerns capitalism as a process. Liberal economists themselves rarely dispute this element of crisis within the system of capital. Indeed, many devote entire careers to finding a way of ironing out this flaw. Some, like John Maynard Keynes and his German-born protégé E.F. Schumacher, have tried to find a third way between communism and liberal economics by advocating massive state intervention on the supply side while allowing demand to express itself much as it has since citizens came to be regarded as consumers around the beginning of the 20th century. However, when those who fully call themselves communists imagine a post-revolutionary world, they do not envisage society as a process. They see a utopia, a world without war or any kind of strife caused by inequality, but fall into two traps. The first is othering associates who deviate from the doctrinal party line. We have seen this in relation to the German left party agreeing to the deployment of troops in Afghanistan. The second, as to what will make the brave new world of a worker's state, is that they expect it to be a liberation from all suffering, whether it is caused by material inequality or not. That is to say, a utopian state as a giant support group, a kind of anxiety anonymous. The idea that things should be other than they are is usually expressed explicitly in terms of social justice, with an anti-war stance further suggesting there can never be justice without an underlying state of peace. People are to be at the centre of a new world order, but not quite just yet. First of all, class enemies have to be eliminated, and then everyone will have thrown off their false consciousness about the previous order of things. Now there will be no lingering resentment over material possessions lost or professional status compromised. In this light, the article has no regard for the humanitarian operation that was the airlifting of evacuees out of Kabul airport. Seeing the last exertions of the German military presence, briefly alluded to earlier, as a bellicose act to justify the party's own ontology, a most favoured word among Marxists. In other words, 
their belief that peace is a first principle understood by the proletariat, who through class struggle will overthrow the current order, the human cost is immaterial by creating a kind of nationalistic and militaristic vacuum which will soon enough become an ideal of peace and a provider of material plenty. We will look in detail at Marx and Engels' manifesto in relation to Hegelian-inspired dialectics presently. From the Passion to Humanism If Catholics and Orthodox Christians believe, as they do, that personal salvation is achieved through the deed, then this suggests faith as a process something far more likely to inspire the communist building of a new Jerusalem than the later Protestant religions, that is, Lutheranism, which believes faith alone can save us from our sins, and Calvinism, which varies from the former in that it regards our sins as predestined. The problem Luther and Calvin had with the position of both Roman Catholicism and Orthodox Christianity was that these established churches, as de jure spiritual bodies with authority, but also with the de facto arbitrary powers of temporal political government, were inherently corrupt evidenced by Catholics paying other Catholics to do their penance. It was righteous outrage to all this that gave rise to the protest that was Martin Luther's response to the assumed infallibility of the Pope, his hammering of ninety-five objections or theses to the door of a church in Wittenberg. Between 1517 and Luther's 95 Theses, hanging from that church door until Kant's critique of pure reason, published in 1781, and later thinkers' emphasis on experience in relation to phenomena as a procession within the permanence of the temporal spatial, there are two figures that highlight the implicit continuity. Jacob Bumer, 1575-1624, who was a Lutheran theologian and the German nationalist Johann Gottfried Herder, born 1744. The latter will help us with the wider backdrop before the former comes centre stage to offer the prologue, as it were, to the German idealism that eventually leads to Marx. Herder, although specifically Prussian by birth, was a fierce pan-German nationalist. He saw regional demarcation points and national borders not only in mountain ranges and stretches of water, but by analogy also in culture and especially in language. Moreover, he saw God's hand in the differences. The exceptionalism implicit in all this invokes ideas of a chosen people. His ideas would never have taken hold among a significant proportion of the populace if seen as convoluted as Kant's philosophy was. 
Thus, there was theological sidestepping, the violently anti-enlightenment stance in relation to the perfectibility of man, and the effrontery of assuming that the best of men in relation to the worst are merely equals in the eyes of God. The populace I am talking about now was Russian, not German. Herder's ideas appealed to the Slavophiles in Russia, some of whom, rounding off the Teutonic sharp edges, promoted Pochenichesva as a kind of ideology, before ideology as a term was ever used. It translates as native soil. Before the later Slavophilia of the Romantic period and writers like Gogol and, to some extent, Dostoevsky, how Pochvenichesva as a facet of the Slavophile movement came to be established in Russian culture is seen in the life and work of Sergei Uvarov, born in 1786, of Tatar lineage. He was a scientist, educationalist, and promoter of intellectual freedom, the last mentioned going against the grain somewhat of the general idea being presented, personal humility, blind obedience to the church, and rejection of urban materialism in favour of either plenty from the soil, or no more than subsistence, as God willed. It was Uvarov who conflated orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality in the service of this native soil movement, eventually giving Nicholas I, Tsar from 1825 to 1855, an imperialist ideological doctrine for the basis of his rule. It found traction again under Alexander III and Nicholas II after the assassination of Alexander II, in 1881. The Zapadniki, or Westerners in Russia, responded to the Slavophilia inspired by Herder and Uvarov with further borrowings from the German intellectual tradition. Having found it useful to look at German nationalism in metamorphosis as Russian Slavophilia, better now to look at German idealism in situ putting it center stage from this point on. The ideas of the Lutheran theologian and autodidact shoemaker Jakob Bumer are mainly concerned with spiritual matters yet relevant when we think of the metaphysics of German idealism. In saying the ideas of the Lutheran theologian, it is perhaps better to say idea and to spell it with a capital I. The concept of idealism now means something somewhat different to what it meant in the past. Rather than it being about the epitome of something that is not always practicable, it used to denote the necessary mental processes when perceiving something in the real world. 
before German idealism, philosophers like George Berkeley believed that external objects could only be understood in appearance as a subset of ideas under the main idea arrived at through reason, God. All other derivations are no more than meaningless abstraction. To both Hegel and Bume, a true understanding of the real world does not warrant such abstraction either. Bume, in style, if not in substance, implies, I cannot be more authoritative as I am unable to read him in the original German, a kind of mysticism which is seen as irrational by Kant, whose consideration of the divine in relation to the transcendental tends to complicate matters. Nevertheless, what was clear to Kant, as well as to later idealist philosophers, was Bumer's insistence on the fall as a necessary stage in the evolution of the universe. Hegel attributed Bumer's mysticism to a lack of cultivation, but had regard for him as an original thinker, in that the theologian understood Godhead as pure reason, and saw logic in the Trinity. Not the integer of God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but God, then the Son, then the Holy Spirit, as a rational process. The philosopher offers a further example. The germination, budding, and bloom of a rose. This second example fits better with Marx, who insisted on seeing reality in materialistic terms, completely rejecting the idea of a system of metaphysics tied up in any notion of Godhead. However, the triad remains. It is usually termed Hegelian, but there were others who structured their philosophy by means of it. Hegel was simply more adept at applying it. Marx, having junked the metaphysical analysis, relates the contradictions of the material world with recourse to this triad, a multiplicity of them. These Hegelian dialectics as material dialectics. This approach as a description of the world in fact, rather than as the product of religion or superstition or bourgeois metaphysical speculation, is the focus of the first section of the Manifesto. Any endeavour to find the unmediated divine idea to justify reality must be based on reason. All of the thinkers we have discussed so far would have grasped the kernel of this. Only one, Marx, would have insisted on a slight rewording. Any endeavour to find the material idea to justify reality must be based on reason. We are not using the word idea in its general sense, remember. For Marx, an equitable distribution of material resources was the idea. In a capitalist system, 
the property-owning classes are self-interested as to the maintaining of the inequitable status quo. Thus, violence against this class is inevitable. Those of the proletariat who succumb to the blandishments of the bourgeoisie are guilty of false consciousness, as it is they who create the circumstances for exploitation by the property owners. Here is the essence of class struggle discussed in the second section and recapitulated in the brief fourth and final section of the manifesto. We will come to the remaining chapter presently. The co-author of the Communist Manifesto, Friedrich Engels, spent some time working in Salford and Manchester in Lancashire in the north of England as a young man. His father had investments in the textile industry there at the time. It was in the present-day Greater Manchester area that textiles started to be machine-made in sufficient volume to mark a sharp difference between the lives of the machine operators and the machine owners. Karl Marx, political theorist, economist, reluctant sociologist, and almost antisocially little else besides, was not the first to use the terms proletariat and bourgeoisie to describe such operators and owners respectively. His pitting of the Latin term against the French one continues to be part of political discourse to this day. Marx and Marxist critique tend to hold on to the essential dichotomy without paying much attention to the substrata of each and any overlap there might be. More tellingly, at the time, it was Engels rather than Marx who wrote The Condition of the Working Class in England, 1845, from first-hand witness. In this work, there was a bias more towards socio-cultural anthropology than to political science. Yet, as a revolutionary, Engels understood the significance of Marx. We know Engels co-wrote the Communist Manifesto with him, but he also sponsored his more ascetic colleague in the writing of Das Kapital, an essential one-off read for undergraduate students of political science, if not always for social or cultural anthropologists. Before socialism was burdened by its inevitability as Marxist doctrine and relegated as just a stepping stone, mercantilism, socialism, communism, there was something of the new dawn about it in the first third of the 19th century in Britain. Robert Owen, a textile manufacturer, is probably the most influential socialist utopian. He opened a mill in New Lanark, Scotland, in 1799 as the last of the terror of the French Revolution was taking place. The socialist principles and cooperative spirit under which the mill operated did not always meet with approval from his co-investors, but there was little damning of it by association with the horrors of revolution in France. 
in Britain a diffuse kind of socialism informed by the nonconformist churches such as the Methodists was taking hold. Likewise, in America, there were similar socialist utopian communities. New Harmony, Indiana, was founded by Owen after the collapse of the experiment in New Lanark. These Christian socialist utopias, however, had little impact on that of the leftist radical politics of continental Europe. Robert Owen's socialist experiment was what Marx and Engels referred to as bourgeois socialism. There were other examples in Britain, including the cooperative society mentioned earlier in the overview. Such forms of socialism were not altogether dismissed, but were seen rather as that necessary penultimate stage in that full transition to communism. Bourgeois socialism is critiqued in the third section of the Manifesto. Throughout, the Manifesto is full of sweeping generalizations about the revolutionary imperative, no less so than when referring to its starting point, the French Revolution. The stated purpose of the 1789 revolution was to sweep away the ancient regime made up of three estates the clergy, the nobility, and commoners, loosely other members, neither of one or other of the first two. Although the label third estate accounted for the vast majority of proletariat or working class, it cannot always be straightforwardly designated as proletarian, nor as always working. Let's look at the second point first. Henri de Saint-Simon, a utopian socialist, given far more to bookish abstraction than Robert Owen, saw an inconsistency within the third estate in that it seemed to be made up of both productive class members alongside idle ones. This was not a distinction as in bourgeois versus proletariat, but an identification of focal points highlighting productivity and idleness regardless of estate. In principle, a clergyman actively involved in growing produce of benefit to the local community would be regarded as a member of the productive classes. An artisan, even a highly skilled one, living within the smallest administrative area, a commune refusing to work, would not. Examples of the latter were what Marx referred to as the lumpen proletariat. The actual proletariat so championed by Marx were the diehards of the Paris Commune following the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71. The French government had fled the capital under siege from the Prussian army. The National Guard, made up 
of increasingly radicalized servicemen began to take over, and then themselves split along the line of some wanting to secure peace with Prussia, while others determined to resist both Prussia and the inept government now operating from Versailles. Those favouring the latter, along with still more politically motivated Parisians joining the Commune, continued their resistance beyond the armistice of February 1871. They wanted the Revolution of 1789 to bear fruit. These were the communards. They held out until the end of May, when a significant number of returning officers and men, once held as prisoners of war, besieged Paris for a second time under the command of Adolphe Thiers, who had negotiated the peace with Prussia six months earlier. The Paris Commune, despite its inglorious end, was the model for Marx and later Lenin and Trotsky of the dictatorship of the proletariat. The Paris Commune remains a beacon for the radical left. Following the emergence of a confident united German empire and the humbling of France, much of the radical revolutionary debate became dry and academic and obscure in relation to German philosophical idealism. The circles involved in carrying this discourse forward were often the liberal elites of the bourgeoisie, people with ideals in the general sense of the word, as well as disposable time and income. They were habitual speakers of French and German who were also decidedly neither French nor German. Both sides of Poland, for example, the Russian Congress of Poland and the West, which had been subsumed by Prussia, had become German-speaking territories, and most educated Poles were fully operational in both German and French, even those who spoke native Polish as a form of resistance to one or other empire. Coming back to the question of communism today, in conclusion, without any further delay. Communism remains tainted by the failure of the Soviet Union, justifiably, not because they got it wrong, but because intrinsically it is wrong, nor because on occasion people think it impracticable. Nonetheless, it is practicable when communities turn their hand to it to deal with local economic difficulties without first poring over articles of doctrine, take Sweden half a century ago, but because in principle it is based on a flawed, non-anthropomorphic reading of history. The Communist Party of Great Britain at the time when Russian tanks were rolling into Poland and Hungary, and later with the construction of the Berlin Wall, faced an existential crisis but survived as a legal entity, at least on paper. 
the German Communist Party reformulated from the Communist Party of Germany in 1960, 13 years after the banning of the original party in West Germany. However, the Communist Party of Great Britain simply withered and then became moribund, although it maintains a token presence in the political landscape. Consequently, it is not taken seriously by the mainstream media. The party may well decry the propagandist nature of much of the right-wing press, but the quality of journalism in papers like the Morning Star is equally poor. On the Monday morning after the German elections, the 27th of September, there was nothing in the Morning Star or anywhere else by its international correspondent Steve Sweeney about the share of the vote won by either the German Communist Party or the Marxist-Leninist Party in Germany. The news story we have looked at this month concerning the federal elections in Germany was no more than a peg on which to hang familiar tropes about world peace that add little to the debate about world peace. The Morning Star does not, in point of fact, produce newspaper copy, rather something better suited to conspiracy theory blogging and podcasting, tick-tocking and tweeting. The Communist Manifesto The manifesto consists of three main sections. It was published in London in 1848, at a time of rebellion against the monarchies of Europe by the bourgeois classes. Chapter 1 of the Communist Manifesto Bourgeois and Proletarians After a preamble explaining the history of all hitherto existing societies as the history of class struggle, the bourgeoisie is defined thus. The modern bourgeois society that has sprouted from the ruins of feudal society has not done away with class antagonisms. It has but established new classes, new conditions of oppression, new forms of struggle in place of the old ones. Our epoch, the epoch of the bourgeoisie, possesses, however, this distinctive feature. It has simplified the class antagonisms. Society as a whole is more and more splitting up into two great hostile camps, into two great classes directly facing each other, bourgeoisie and proletariat. From the serfs of the Middle Ages sprang the chartered burghers of the earliest towns. From these burgesses, the first elements of the bourgeoisie were developed. The discovery of America, the rounding of the Cape, opened up fresh ground for the rising bourgeoisie. The East Indian and Chinese markets, the colonization of America, trade with the colonies, the increase in the means of exchange and in commodities generally, gave to commerce 
to navigation, to industry, an impulse never before known, and thereby to the revolutionary element in the tottering feudal society, a rapid development. The feudal system of industry under which industrial production was monopolized by closed guilds now no longer sufficed for the growing wants of the new markets. The manufacturing system took its place. The guild masters were pushed on one side by the manufacturing middle class. Division of labor between the different corporate guilds vanished in the face of division of labor in each single workshop. Meantime, the markets kept ever growing, the demand ever rising. Even manufacture no longer sufficed. Thereupon, steam and machinery revolutionized industrial production. The place of manufacture was taken by the giant, modern industry. The place of the industrial middle class by industrial millionaires, the leaders of whole industrial armies, the modern bourgeoisie. Modern industry has established the world market for which the discovery of America paved the way. This market has given an immense development to commerce, to navigation, to communication by land. This development has, in its time, reacted on the extension of industry, and in proportion as industry, commerce, navigation, railways extended, in the same proportion the bourgeoisie developed, increased its capital, and pushed into the background every class handed down from the Middle Ages. After going on to relate how the bourgeoisie appropriated the means of industrial production, the proletariat is described as follows. Owing to the extensive use of machinery and to division of labor, the work of the proletarians has lost all individual character, and consequently all charm for the workman. He becomes an appendage of the machine, and it is only the most simple, most monotonous, and most easily acquired knack that is required of him. Hence, the cost of production of a workman is restricted almost entirely to the means of subsistence that he requires for his maintenance and for the propagation of his race. But the price of a commodity, and therefore also of labor, is equal to its cost of production. In proportion, therefore, as the repulsiveness of the work increases, the wage decreases. Nay more, in proportion as the use of machinery and division of labor increases, in the same proportion the burden of toil also increases, whether by prolongation of the working hours, by increase of the work exacted in a given time, or by increased speed of the machinery, etc. Modern industry has converted the little workshop 
of the patriarchal master into the great factory of the industrial capitalist. Masses of laborers crowded into the factory are organized like soldiers. As privates of the industrial army, they are placed under the command of a perfect hierarchy of officers and sergeants. Not only are they slaves of the bourgeois class and of the bourgeois state, they are daily and hourly enslaved by the machine, by the overlooker, and, above all, by the individual bourgeois manufacturer himself. The more openly this despotism proclaims gain to be its end and aim, the more petty, the more hateful, and the more embittering it is. The less the skill and exertion of strength implied in manual labor, in other words, the more modern industry becomes developed, the more is the labor of men superseded by that of women. Differences of age and sex have no longer any distinctive social validity for the working class. All are instruments of labor, more or less expensive to use according to their age and sex. No sooner is the exploitation of the laborer by the manufacturer so far at an end that he receives his wages in cash than he is set upon by the other portions of the bourgeoisie, the landlord, the shopkeeper, the pawnbroker, etc., the lower strata of the middle class, the small tradespeople, shopkeepers, retired tradesmen generally, the handicraftsmen and peasants, all these sink gradually into the proletariat, partly because their diminutive capital does not suffice for the scale on which modern industry is carried on and is swamped in the competition with the large capitalists partly because their specialized skill is rendered worthless by the new methods of production. Thus, the proletariat is recruited from all classes of the population. Chapter 2 of the Communist Manifesto Proletarians and Communists Here, the hectoring nature of the rhetorical questions makes the analysis feel much more like part of a conversation with the reader, albeit a one-sided one. In what relation do the communists stand to the proletarians as a whole? The communists do not form a separate party opposed to other working-class parties. They have no interests separate and apart from those of the proletariat as a whole. They do not set up any sectarian principles of their own by which to shape and mould the proletarian movement. The communists are distinguished from the other working class parties by this only one in the national struggles of the proletarians of the different countries, they point out and bring to the front the common interests of the entire proletariat, independently of all nationality. 2. 
in the various stages of development which the struggle of the working class against the bourgeoisie has to pass through, they always and everywhere represent the interests of the movement as a whole. The communists, therefore, are, on the one hand, practically the most advanced and resolute section of the working class parties of every country that section which pushes forward all others. On the other hand, theoretically they have, over the great mass of the proletariat, the advantage of clearly understanding the line of march, the conditions and the ultimate general results of the proletarian movement. The immediate aim of the communist is the same as that of all other proletarian parties. Formation of the proletariat into a class, overthrow of the bourgeois supremacy, conquest of political power by the proletariat. The theoretical conclusions of the communists are in no way based on ideas or principles that have been invented or discovered by this or that would-be universal reformer. They merely express, in general terms, actual relations springing from an existing class struggle, from an historical movement going on under our very eyes. The abolition of existing property relations is not at all a distinctive feature of communism. All property relations in the past have continually been subject to historical change consequent upon the change in historical conditions. The French Revolution, for example, abolished feudal property in favour of bourgeois property. The distinguishing feature of communism is not the abolition of property generally, but the abolition of bourgeois property, but modern bourgeois private property is the final and most complete expression of the system of producing and appropriating products that is based on class antagonisms, on the exploitation of the many by the few. In this sense, the theory of the communists may be summed up in the single sentence abolition of private property. We communists have been reproached with the desire of abolishing the right of personally acquired property as the fruit of a man's own labour, which property is alleged to be the groundwork of all personal freedom, activity and independence. Hard-won, self-acquired, self-earned property? Do you mean the property of the petty artisan and of the small peasant, a form of property that preceded the bourgeois form? There is no need to abolish that. The development of industry has, to a great extent, already destroyed it, and is still destroying it daily. Or do you mean modern bourgeois private property? But does wage labour create any property for the labourer? Not a bit. It creates capital, 
i.e. that kind of property which exploits wage labor and which cannot increase except upon condition of begetting a new supply of wage labor for fresh exploitation. Property, in its present form, is based on the antagonism of capital and wage labor. Let us explain both sides of this antagonism. To be a capitalist is to have not only a purely personal but a social status in production. Capital is a collective product, and only by the united action of many members, nay, in the last resort, only by the united action of all members of society can it be set in motion. Capital is, therefore, not a personal it is a social power. When, therefore, capital is converted into common property, into the property of all members of society, personal property is not thereby transformed into social property. It is only the social character of the property that is changed. It loses its class character. The section then goes on to say more about the nature of wage labour. Chapter 3 of the Communist Manifesto Socialist and Communist Literature Marx saw little of intrinsic value in the liberal revolutions against the monarchies of Europe in 1848 when the manifesto was published but accepted them as the march of history. Here there is analysis on socialism. Three kinds of socialism are mentioned. A. Feudal socialism. Owing to their historical position, it became the vocation of the aristocracies of France and England to write pamphlets against modern bourgeois society. In the French Revolution of July 1830 and in the English Reform Agitation, these aristocracies again succumbed to the hateful upstart. Thenceforth, a serious political contest was altogether out of the question. A literary battle alone remained possible, but even in the domain of literature the old cries of the Restoration period had become impossible. In order to arouse sympathy, the aristocracy were obliged to lose sight, apparently, of their own interests, and to formulate their indictment against the bourgeoisie in the interest of the exploited working class alone. Thus, the aristocracy took their revenge by singing lampoons on their new master and whispering in his ears sinister prophecies of coming catastrophe. In this way arose feudal socialism, half lamentation, half lapoon, half echo of the past, half menace of the future at times by its bitter, witty, and incisive criticism, striking the bourgeoisie to the very heart's core, but always ludicrous in its effect through total incapacity to comprehend the march of modern history. 
the aristocracy, in order to rally the people to them, waved the proletarian arms bag in front for a banner. But the people, so often as it joined them, saw on their hind quarters the old feudal coat of arms and deserted with loud and irreverent laughter. This section continues in the same vein, tendentious in its indulgence of sweeping generalizations parading as empirical evidence. B. Petty bourgeois socialism related in full. The feudal aristocracy was not the only class that was ruined by the bourgeoisie, not the only class whose conditions of existence pined and perished in the atmosphere of modern bourgeois society. The medieval burgesses and the small peasant proprietors were the precursors of the modern bourgeoisie. In those countries which are but little developed, industrially and commercially, these two classes still vegetate side by side with the rising bourgeoisie. In countries where modern civilization has become fully developed, a new class of petty bourgeoisie has been formed, fluctuating between proletariat and bourgeoisie, and ever renewing itself as a supplementary part of bourgeois society. The individual members of this class, however, are being constantly hurled down into the proletariat by the action of competition and as modern industry develops. They even see the moment approaching when they will completely disappear as an independent section of modern society to be replaced in manufactures agriculture and commerce by overlookers, bailiffs and shopmen. In countries like France, where the peasants constitute far more than half of the population, it was natural that writers who sided with the proletariat against the bourgeoisie should use, in their criticism of the bourgeois regime, the standard of the peasant and petty bourgeois, and from the standpoint of these intermediate classes, should take up the cudgels for the working class. Thus arose petty bourgeois socialism. Sismondi was the head of this school, not only in France, but also in England. This school of socialism dissected with great acuteness the contradictions in the conditions of modern production. It lay bare the hypocritical apologies of economists. It proved incontrovertibly the disastrous effects of machinery and division of labor, the concentration of capital and land in a few hands, overproduction and crisis. It pointed out the inevitable ruin of the petty bourgeois and peasant the misery of the proletariat, the anarchy in production, the crying inequalities in the distribution of wealth, the industrial war of extermination between nations, the dissolution of old moral bonds, of the old family relations, of the old nationalities. 
In its positive aims, however, this form of socialism aspires either to restoring the old means of production and of exchange, and with them the old property relations and the old society, or to cramping the modern means of production and of exchange within the framework of the old property relations that have been and were bound to be exploited by those means. In either case, it is both reactionary and utopian. Its last words are corporate guilds for manufacture, patriarchal relations in agriculture. Ultimately, when stubborn historical facts had dispersed all intoxicating effects of self-deception, this form of socialism ended in a miserable fit of the blues. C. German or true socialism. Note the quotation marks. True socialism. The socialist and communist literature of France a literature that originated under the pressure of a bourgeoisie in power and that was the expression of the struggle against this power, was introduced into Germany at a time when the bourgeoisie in that country had just begun its contest with feudal absolutism. German philosophers would be philosophers and beau esprit eagerly seized on this literature, only forgetting that when these writers immigrated from France into Germany, French social conditions had not immigrated along with them. In contact with German social conditions, this French literature lost all its immediate practical significance and assumed a purely literary aspect. Thus, to the German philosophers of the 18th century, the demands of the First French Revolution were nothing more than the demands of practical reason in general, and the utterance of the will of the revolutionary French bourgeoisie signalled in their eyes the law of pure will, of will as it was bound to be, of true human will generally. The world of the German literate consisted solely in bringing the new French ideas into harmony with their ancient philosophical conscience, or rather in annexing the French ideas without deserting their own philosophic point of view. This example is extended in a later paragraph. It is well known how the monks wrote silly lives of Catholic saints over the manuscripts on which the classical works of ancient heathendom had been written. The German literate reversed this process with the profane French literature. They wrote their philosophical nonsense beneath the French original, for instance, beneath 
the French criticism of the economic functions of money, they wrote alienation of humanity, and beneath the French criticism of the bourgeois state, they wrote dethronement of the category of the general, and so forth. This section concludes thus. By this, the long-wished-for opportunity was offered to true socialism of confronting the political movement with the socialist demands, of hurling the traditional anathemas against liberalism, against representative government, against bourgeois competition, bourgeois freedom of the press, bourgeois legislation, bourgeois liberty and equality, and of preaching to the masses that they had nothing to gain and everything to lose by this bourgeois movement. German socialism forgot, in the nick of time, that the French criticism, whose silly echo it was, presupposed the existence of modern bourgeois society, with its corresponding economic conditions of existence and the political constitution adapted thereto, the very things whose attainment was the object of the pending struggle in Germany. To the absolute governments, with their following of parsons, professors, country squires, and officials, it served as a welcome scarecrow against the threatening bourgeoisie. It was a sweet finish after the bitter pills of floggings and bullets with which these same governments, just at that time, dosed the German working-class risings. While this true socialism thus served the governments as a weapon for fighting the German bourgeoisie, it at the same time directly represented a reactionary interest, the interest of the German Philistines. In Germany, the petty bourgeois class, a relic of the 16th century, and since then constantly cropping up again, is the real social basis of the existing state of things. To preserve this class is to preserve the existing state of things in Germany. The industrial and political supremacy of the bourgeoisie threatens it with certain destruction. On the one hand, from the concentration of capital, on the other, from the rise of the revolutionary proletariat. True socialism appeared to kill these two birds with one stone. It spread like an epidemic. The robe of speculative cobwebs, embroidered with flowers of rhetoric, steeped in the dew of sickly sentiment, this transcendental robe in which the German socialists wrapped their sorry eternal truths, all skin and bone, served to wonderfully increase the sale of their goods amongst such a public. And on its part, German socialism recognized more and more its own calling as the bombastic representative of the petty bourgeois philistine.
It proclaimed the German nation to be the model nation, and the German petty Philistine to be the typical man. To every villainous meanness of this model man, it gave a hidden, higher, socialistic interpretation, the exact contrary of its real character. It went to the extreme length of directly opposing the brutally destructive tendency of communism and of proclaiming its supreme and partial contempt of all class struggles. With very few exceptions, all the so-called socialist and communist publications that now, 1847, circulate in Germany, belong to the domain of this foul and enervating literature.